Blog Talk Radio. where we discuss news, politics, and sometimes culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and those of you who are regular listeners to this show can probably detect that I have somewhat of a cold going on right now. So that's exactly what I needed, right, when I was recovering from surgery. It's been about two weeks since my surgery, and now I've got a cold. So um, bear with me on the voice if it squeaks or does something strange. I don't think it's as bad as it was when I first woke up this morning. When I woke up this morning, I was really scared that I was going to have laryngitis entirely. Um, My throat's not sore right now, so I'm not suffering. It was sore last night, so we'll just see. Maybe this will be a virus that will pass through quickly. Uh, The other option for my cause of sore throat, and those of you who are medical experts can tell me whether this is possible or not. Um, I found out earlier this year, because I took a blood test with all these uh, potential foods, I, I think they test 100 different foods, and they tell you you know, what you're allergic to of any of these 100 different foods. And thankfully, of anything that they tested, of any of these 100 foods, I had no serious allergy to any of them. However, there were a number of things that were shown to be mild allergens for me. And um, some of those things were things that I ate very frequently. So I I was surprised. So, for example, onions, oregano, honey, grapefruit, turkey, turkey, yeah, from Thanksgiving, tuna, sweet potato. Now, sweet potato, I don't know if that's also going to include yam. I ate yam yesterday. But I had turkey and yam, and there was probably onion and much of the stuff that was being served as well. I think I remember seeing some onion in the stuffing and things like that. So maybe the fact that I kind of piled on some allergens onto my plate and ate them could be uh, could be that. Okay, good. Everyone's getting the sound there. I know people will have that. Uh, Fiona in the chat room says, garlic will fix that cold. Yeah, probably garlic, zinc, I'm told. There's all kinds of things that I can apply. I'm really just trying to stick with the water because the water is also the thing that helps me recover from my surgery. So, yeah, hopefully the voice is not too bad and you can stand it. I'm very happy that you chose to join me here today for the Black Friday show instead of going out there and fighting the crowds. I saw some headline about two women physically fighting each other over a vegetable steamer of all things. So I'm I'm very happy that you're here with me instead of out there doing that. And we will actually talk a little bit 
about Black Friday. But as you saw, the title for today's show is this. It's the metaphysical, the man-made, and politicians. These are things that people might have difficulty in terms of judging properly. So that's the thing that groups all of them. Um, Sometimes we think politicians are pretty much metaphysical, and I'll, I'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute. But um, it's kind of an objectivist in title. So those of you who aren't objectivists, uh, this idea of the metaphysical versus the man-made is something that you haven't really talked about. So I hope that I can interest you in the topic during this show. But those of you who are fans of Ayn Rand's philosophy or objectivists yourself probably found this, yeah, very uh, a fun little in title. So I hope you do enjoy the show. Go for the program notes. You can check out all the program notes for today's show. Those program notes are the lists, the links to all the stories, et cetera, that I plan to discuss. Go to don'tletitgo.com, don'tletitgo.com, and you can see all of those things and check it out. Um, I've got a couple of videos over there for you to watch today as well, just a couple of YouTube videos that you can check out. Don't watch them during the show. Wait till after the show. But uh, do check it out. Um, The first story that's over there. Oh, and by the way, I have to tell you, do call in today if you would like to give my voice a little bit of relief and you want to chime in on any of the stories that I have planned here. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So, feel free to call in and chime in on any of this. But the first story is the one that had me bring the metaphysical versus the man-made into the title of this week's show. And it was shared by Greg Gutfeld out there on Twitter. It's an article from The Guardian. And the headline is just irresistible. It says, Our evil planet kills countless humans every year. Why bother to save it? And it's written by someone named Colin Quinn. And he starts out, if this planet exploded tomorrow, I wouldn't shed a tear. Now, that's actually true, that if it exploded, he wouldn't shed a tear because he'd be dead along with all of us. But you know what he means. He says, environmentalists say evil mankind is destroying a beautiful God-given place. And he says, really? Mudslides, earthquakes, and twisters kill millions, thousands of people, he says, every year. Innocent planet, he says, I judge by deeds, not words. Yes, pollutants kill, but so do rock slides. If you talk to the average resident of a natural disaster location, they will be glad to tell you the planet has done as much evil as the average multinational in terms of lives taken in their local community. Uh, Earth, he continues, has these, quote, natural occurrences that devastate homes and villages. But are they really natural occurrences? Sounds more like indulgent planets speak for insane outbursts of a maniac, like a serial killer that's handsome but then has these episodes of murder. He says, I've experienced this planet's wrath firsthand. Well, wrath is too strong a word, and so is firsthand for that matter. He says, I've experienced this planet's harassment from a slice of pizza getting soaked by a sudden rainstorm, the tragedy, uh, to a sunburn that left me unable to put on my shirt when I was a child. Living with this planet is like living with an alcoholic. It makes me wonder if the climate change is man-made or another mood swing by this ball of gas. And he goes on. Um, So you get the picture. And this is, uh, I think, you know, a 
an interesting point, right? Those people who say that there is man-made, you know, anthropogenic, significant global warming and climate change, and that it's, you know, such a problem that we need to take drastic measures to, quote, reduce our carbon footprint and make sure that we save the planet. This is an interesting counterpoint to it. You know, it's why are you working so hard to save this earth when this earth doesn't seem to have any regard for us whatsoever and in fact slaughtered us, you know, slaughters us in mass on a semi-regular basis. Uh, SFMO in the chat says, same Colin Quinn from SNL. Potentially, right? Colin Quinn from SNL, was Colin Quinn British? This is the Guardian. Of course, not everybody who works for Guardian is British, but um, I can't remember. Now, I don't know, you'd have to go look it up, but obviously this is a, you know, a comedic entry, so it's it's quite possible. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting counterpoint. You know, why, why work so hard to save this planet? What's so great about this planet? It's horrible to us all the time. So you like it, right? You like it as a counterpoint to the climate change alarmists who want to control every aspect of our lives and tax us and destroy the economy so that they can, quote, save the planet, save the climate, save our ecosystem, so to speak. Um, So I like it in that. But then what it does in a way is it brings in this idea of judging the planet, either as good or bad, right? So what do what do the environmentalists and the climate change alarmists do? They put our planet and so-called nature on a pedestal, and they say the mere fact that nature is the way it is means that there's some sort of moral duty of us to preserve it as close to exactly the way it is as possible. And in fact, we should bemoan every single step that we take on this planet because we should feel guilty about it. We are defacing nature as it is. And, it, you know, this is something that has to be erected as an unquestionable good, right? So they, they do that. And what, what does this do? This says, okay, I accept your premise. I accept your premise that we're going to judge nature, the planet, you know, the environment, and that we are going to determine our moral duty to act certain ways accordingly. But here it says, no, the planet is evil. The planet is killing us. It's, you know, it's like a maniac. It's like a homicidal maniac in that way. And so it, it, it accepts that premise. And so what I wanted to just talk about, I mean, obviously, I think it's funny, but what I wanted to kind of debunk in this piece is this idea that you would judge the planet one way or the other as good or bad. And this is where we get into the philosophical terminology of the metaphysical versus the the man-made. And for this, what I did is I pulled out my handy-dandy copy of Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, The Philosophy of Ayn Rand. And, And I linked to that book in the program notes for today's show. By the way, if you want to do Black Friday shopping, Use that little link that I, uh, you know, provide to Objectivism Philosophy of Ayn Rand. You could buy that book if you don't have it. But anything that you buy through Amazon using that link will be uh, a support of this show. So avoid the crowds, shop Amazon, support the show. Um, but I'm looking just in the very first chapter, the first chapter of this book. It's a hierarchical presentation of Ayn Rand's philosophy, by the way. So if you haven't checked it out yet, you really should, because it will give you the entire picture in essentials from the ground up. And the ground of the philosophy is metaphysics. It is the 
branch of philosophy that studies the nature of the universe as a whole. You could also talk about, you know, something about the nature of man and man's relation to the universe, but it focuses on the nature of the universe as a whole. So questions like, is there one reality, only this world that we live in and that we perceive with our senses? Or is there potentially a superior and even also an inferior dimension? Is there something like a heaven or a hell or Plato's world of forms, you know, et cetera? Um, so, uh, you know, answer that question. Things that exist, do they have a fixed and stable identity? Or is everything in flux such that, you know, an elephant who's sitting right there could instantaneously turn into a balloon and float into the air in the next second and things like that? Uh, causality, is there even such a thing as causality and what is it based in, if if so, et cetera. Now, one topic, one topic in metaphysics is this metaphysically given. So metaphysically given is absolute. And what do you mean by that? Metaphysically given means, and I'm quoting from Opar here, uh, any fact inherent in existence apart from human action. Any fact inherent in existence apart from human action. So the nature of our planet and the so-called natural disasters and everything that happen are metaphysically given. As far as we know, they are not created by man in any essential way. You could talk about you know, that men do have some influence on the climate and there's a little bit of influence on the margins, but in general... Whatever the planet is dishing out, and it's been dishing out all sorts of things for a long time, is metaphysically given. So you would not accordingly judge this as evil. Let me talk to you about the issue of evaluation and judgment. Uh, I'm skipping over a couple pages to page 25 in OPAR for those of people who like to, to follow along. Uh, the distinction between the metaphysically given and the man-made everything that's made by man, is crucial to every branch of philosophy and every area of human life. The two kinds of facts must be treated differently, each in accordance with its nature. Metaphysically given facts are reality, right? The way that the planet is and whatever is going on in the planet, how much the planet provides an environment for us to thrive versus how much the planet, you know, kind of spontaneously and ruthlessly creates these natural disasters for, you know, for slaughtering human beings, any of these metaphysically given facts are reality. As such, they are not subject to anyone's appraisal. They must be accepted without evaluation. Facts of reality, Dr. Peikoff continues, must be greeted not by approval or condemnation, praise or blame, but by a silent nod of acquiescence um, amounting to the affirmation, they are, were, will be, and have to be. Um, metaphysically given, right sign Rand, Peikoff's quoting from Rand here, cannot be true or false, it simply is. And man determines the truth or falsehood of his judgments by whether they correspond to or contradict the facts of reality. The metaphysically given cannot be right or wrong. It is the standard of right or wrong by which a rational man judges his goals, his values, his choices. Okay? So you can't say the planet is inherently good in a way that compels you morally to act to preserve it or, in fact, stifle 
your existence and your enjoyment in this world because you're going to, you know, increase your carbon footprint and destroy the environment and things like that. So on the one hand, you can't say that because the environment just is. It is there. And then we evaluate aspects of the environment in relation to our goals, staying alive, having a better life, having a more enjoyable life. Um, And similarly, even though I love this piece from Colin Quinn over at The Guardian, it's funny, right? And, you know, to some extent it's true. It accepts this premise of morally evaluating the earth and just takes the opposite tack. You know, now the earth is evil. It's actually evil. So why would you act to preserve it? Why would you accept confiscatory taxes, um, you know, in the name of preserving the climate? Why would you accept all sorts of crippling regulations that would further destroy an economy that's always, you know, that's already struggling to recover from, what is it, almost a decade of recession or something that we've got going here. So, anyway, maybe I rained on the parade a little bit because I did. I really, when I first saw this piece, I thought, oh, that's really funny. And then I thought, oh, gosh, it accepts that premise. It accepts that premise that you're going to judge the metaphysically given, the world, the, the thing that just is, as either good or bad and create a moral duty just from the fact of the existence of the planet in a certain way. And what we got going here in the chat room? Um, people are talking about harp, anonymous, uh, ominous parallels, another one. Oh, who said? Someone said they haven't read Opar, but have read ominous parallels and dim. Now it's interesting, Roger, it's Roger who said that. Roger said he's read Dim, The Dim Hypothesis, which is Leonard Peikoff's third book. Uh, Many would say magnum opus in terms of philosophy. But that book, he counted on objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand. I'm calling it Opar. Uh, He counted on that as context. So you might really want to check it out. And in fact, if you read Opar and then you go back and read Dim again, you might end up going, getting more out of it. Uh, Fiona says, natural disasters are nature's way in calling the population when needed. Now, see, I think, Fiona, in saying that, you're also sort of accepting this premise that the fact that it's natural somehow means that it's good or that there's a purpose to it. And Rand would say no. Rand would say that the natural disasters just are and you wouldn't say they're evil or that they're good or that there's something purposeful or, you know, that we should accept about them as good in any way, that there's, you know, some sort of a good purpose. Uh, we don't need to cull the population of our earth. This whole Malthusian idea that we're overcrowded, even in California, you can drive and find all kinds of open space. There is plenty, plenty of places in this earth for people to live and survive if we just uh, institute the right social system, the right, uh, you know, capitalism. I mean, we just need, we need capitalism to leave people free to innovate and to create ways for human beings to survive, for larger and larger populations to thrive. Um, Now, the only thing you could say out there is that if you've got, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda fighting each other, that that is, you know, human nature's way of culling the population, namely culling the evil people out of the population. But see, then you're talking about human beings and actions that they choose to have. Um, 
SFMO, like I, think, I think he says call me Mo in the chat room, but says natural disasters happen on Mars and Jupiter and the sun all the time. No population there to cull. And that's exactly, you know, um, if there were no people there, what could you even say about anything that happened there? It wouldn't even matter. Um, God's wrath, says Tim. Um, you know, some people would say, would attribute it to God's wrath. Now, Rand, of course, would not as an atheist. And, and I would agree. It's, ju- it's You wouldn't even say it's a wrath, really. It's an earthquake. It's a, a storm. And, you know, what do you do? You judge that this earthquake or this storm poses certain risks to human life, and then you act accordingly. But you don't judge the storm itself as evil. I mean, you, you know, people do it in a colloquial sense all the time. Um, I've seen dredge headlines, you know, talking about certain hurricanes and things coming our way and that, you know, sort of implying that they were purposefully moving along a certain path in order to hit major population centers or things like that. And they don't do that. There's no purpose to this. It just happens. Now, then we say, okay, we see it coming and then we act accordingly. We board up our windows and we do all those things. But um, yeah, Al in the chat room says, all of this, it accepts the premise that nature is a thinking entity. The idea that nature says the human population is out of control and I need to call it, right? The idea that there's some sort of actual purposeful action behind it. And, you know, according to Rand, at least, there isn't. You know, there there's, and, and I agree with her, of course, you know, whatever is, is. And our job as human beings, if we choose to live on this planet as human beings, is to observe all of these things that are going on accurately and take action accordingly and consistent, you know, excuse me, consistently with our goals. Um, anyway, I hope I hope you enjoy that. But I do, I do, I, I love the spirit of this piece because you know it's it's bucking the trend. Um, but I'm telling you, if you know, if Greg Gutfeld looked at this, he probably did not think about this issue of the conceded premise of the metaphysical versus the man-made and and judging nature in that way. Nature is neither so good that you're supposed to put it on a pedestal and worship it, nor is it so bad that you're supposed to disregard it and say, okay, let's just go out and trash the countryside. (laughs) John in the chat room says, well, but what about our grandchildren? Uh, Again, human innovation is going to figure out a way that we can live in an environment that is healthful for human beings, for decades and I would say centuries to come, so long as we don't end up all killing each other in war, I think that we'll be able to do it. And a couple of the stories that I have for today, talking about technological innovations, are just going to be a little bit of indication of you know the, the power of human intelligence, human ingenuity to solve problems that seem insurmountable. These are all things that can be fixed. And of course, for more on that topic, I refer you to... Alex Epstein and his work with the uh, Center for Industrial Progress. It's, it's some good stuff. Um, Al says, unless your grandchildren are already alive, who cares? Well, that's not true necessarily because you have your children and you know that your children are going to, I mean, maybe they'll have children and they will care about those children. So in the abstract, I mean, you, you love your children and you know in the abstract that they may or probably will have children and that they will care about them. So you, you care. You care, but when you make a judgment about whether you're going to severely curb your behavior and reduce the quality of your life and your lifespan 
when all indications are that human beings are able to modify their environments in order to make it even more habitable for human beings over time. That's every indication that we have. Again, go check out some of the work of Alec Epstein on this, but human ingenuity is going to be able to solve this problem. Remember, Malthus, right? When, when was Malthus predicting all this? End of the 1700s or something? We were all supposed to be long dead and starving by now, and it is not happening. Um, so, Rand said, either ghosts of the past or ghosts of the future. No, I mean, certainly we don't have a duty to sacrifice for the, quote, ghosts of the future. But your grandchildren, yeah, you care about your grandchildren. You would like to have the world that they are left with be habitable. But there are, I think, a lot bigger fish to fry in that regard. And like I said, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which I mentioned in passing, are probably a couple bigger worries for you know the future of our grandchildren than would be any of this stuff. Um, so I see Fiona, COG, selfishness, all having a good chat here in the chat room. So feel free to come there and chime in. John Stewart's there as well. Um, oh, Trevor says he missed a chunk here during the restart. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Microsoft does. They push those updates all the time and those pesky updates get in the way. Good to have you here, Trevor. Um, yeah, good good to talk to you. I was going to talk to you about something that we had talked about on Facebook, but I'll ask you another, another time. Um, so that was my little foray into the metaphysical versus the man-made. Let's talk a little bit about Black Friday. Dr. Michael Hurd had an interesting piece on it. And, you know, every every year there's these news stories. The Onion had this funny little thing today about, what was it, Black Friday, 42 million Americans lost their lives in Black Friday or something like that. And I did not even read it, but if you know The Onion, they go on and on about people having fights. But I did see, I did actually see a real headline about two women physically fighting each other over a vet. Things are getting out of control when that happens. Um Oh, Stuart, the scholar here in the chat room, Stuart Hayashi is, is quite a scholar. He says, in the final edition of his essay on the principle of population, Malthus black-pedaled a bit. Well, that's good. Excellent. No, Trevor, the thing I was going to ask you about was a personal thing, so I can't talk about it now, actually. Um, okay. Boxing Day sales fight, says Fiona. Yeah, it's, it's the same principle. Whatever day has been erected is the day that everybody's supposed to go out and get ridiculous deals on sales in the retail stores by going and camping out and lining up and fighting your way to the shelves where they stock the goods and then fighting your way to the register to get checked out and just being miserable generally in order to save a few bucks. That day here is what we call Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And yeah, Boxing Day might be some of that as well. Now, I always thought of Boxing Day, though. Boxing Day is a day where you're supposed to kind of box up all the stuff that you didn't want anymore and you would give it to charity in order to get the clutter out of your house and, you know, at least let the items that you're not using be used by somebody else. So, um, yeah, Fiona says it's similar. Yeah, you know, I mean... But the the interesting thing about this piece, so what Dr. Hurd's piece is called, is the mob psychology of Black Friday. And he attributes the Black Friday phenomenon, which actually is kind of inexplicable, because if you think about it, capitalism per se is not very popular in the United States. I would say there's a number of Republicans 
who are champions of capitalism, but there's also a number of Republicans who just kind of grudgingly accept capitalism as the best way to deliver the greatest good for the greatest number. And of course, tons of Democrats and the socialist, the increasing socialist faction of the Democratic Party just completely excoriates capitalism every chance they get. And there's a number of people in the United States who just accept the evil of capitalism. They vote for these politicians who decry capitalism as horrible and evil, you know, which you can do, you can judge capitalism because capitalism is, you know, a system that is built as a result of choices of human beings, so we can judge it. But, you know, there's all these people, they judge capitalism as evil. And nonetheless, every Friday after Thanksgiving, those same people who vote for those anti-capitalist politicians, they rush out to the stores and they fight with each other to get the so-called deals. And there's plenty of stories out there, by the way, too, that talk about the fact that the so-called deals that you get on Black Friday really aren't those graded deals anyway. Sometimes you'll get them. But, it, I mean, you may as well be trying to win the lottery if you're going to get a super deal on Black Friday. Um so, so first of all, why are they shopping when they're anti-capitalists? They're going out there and they're engaging in trying to, you know, enjoy the fruits of capitalism. Maybe they think they're sticking it to the stores by buying only on Black Friday when they're getting such a great deal or something. But it's not happening. They're still playing into the, the store's grander plan. So they're out there, you know, with their actions supporting capitalism. But then when they vote and when they speak, they don't. So how does that happen? And... Heard explains that it's part of this mob psychology that even though they don't understand why, it's you know everybody goes out and does this on Black Friday. They camp out and they go to the stores and they fight the crowds and they brag about the deals they got and everything else. And you wouldn't want to be left behind the Joneses and all your life you've been brought up to think of yourself in comparison with other people as part of a group. And since the group is going out and engaging in this ritual of Black Friday, who are you to stay home and poo-poo it? Um, this year... One retailer, a fairly popular retailer in the United States called REI that specializes in sort of outdoor you know, gear and, and clothing and everything else, they decided that they would not be open today on Black Friday. And I think they call it Opt Outside was the hashtag campaign that they started. Um, and then there were like kind of reactions to that. Uh, there was one, there's, um, there's a company called Good effing design advice, GFDA. And um, they are the ones, if you remember, Johnny Ive had this poster in his office, and it was, you know, like, get off your effing butt and do the work. Or I can't remember all of it, but it was, you know, this big long string of exhortations peppered with profanity. And it was cute, and, and the poster was well designed and everything. And, and it was a product of this company called uh, GFDA, Good effing Design Advice. And they had an answer to it. It was like um, like F camping or something like that. So they were saying, no, you should shop on Black Friday and here's this great deal that we're giving you and, you know, forget the camping. Um, so, yeah, so there's been this reaction to Black Friday and then this counter reaction. People are saying, no, of course, I'm going to go spend money on Black Friday. This is awesome. But why? And he says, it's just this, it's just this mob mentality. That's all that there is to it. Um, Interestingly, Dr. Hurd says that he doesn't exchange Christmas gifts any longer, and he says not because he's against them in principle, but simply because he and his loved ones already have what they need, 
and he says, um, we don't hesitate to buy what we want through the year. But he says, if I did still shop for Christmas gifts, I wouldn't go out with the mobs. I'd actually try to thoughtfully select things throughout the year. I'd want to shop in as much peace and quiet as possible so I can carefully find and select the things I want to buy. I'd recognize that there are more crowds than usual at Christmas time, and to some extent, this might even be festive and fun, but I wouldn't deliberately seek out the mob. I used to work retail before I ever went to college, way back when I was a manager of a, a Sam Goody's record store. I think I've talked about that on the on the show before. So retail Christmas time and the lines and sometimes the rudeness of the people, I am very, very well aware of it. And I really kind of, uh, you know, kind of pick my shots in terms of going out to the mall any time in this time of year. But I, I have the same approach. I love it when I can think of a gift for a person, you know, a long time in advance and kind of have it hidden somewhere or whatever and then be able to, to wrap it and don't engage in this kind of rush or this need. Again, you know, I, I just can't imagine physically fighting another human being over a vegetable steamer. It's just not that important. Trevor says, I refuse to mob shop. People are awful and ruin the experience. Yeah, it, it's definitely true. It's definitely true. So um, definitely go out and check out Dr. Hurd's pieces. And he's got a lot of wonderful pieces. But he says, um, you know, kind of the root behind this is that there is this idea of compulsion or compulsive behavior. And he attributes this Black Friday, this need to shop, as an example of people trying to relieve their anxiety. Um, he says it's you know, compulsive behavior is something done for the express purpose, conscious or not, of reducing anxiety. And they shop compulsively as one of the things that they do to reduce their anxiety. Um, so, of course, what would you do? You would replace with a more positive approach to shopping, which would be, as he says, you know, doing it in a more leisurely way, choosing deliberately, the gifts that you want to give. COG says, I shop with a stun gun handy. No. Oh, my gosh. Um, Dr. Hurd says, selfishness is just underestimating advertising. So you're saying that the power of advertising can help explain why people engage in these deals. That could be as well. But does the advertising tie into this need to be part of the crowd, right? It's to impress people with the gadgets and all the awesome things that you have that you wouldn't want to miss out on this deal that everybody else is going to do. <laughs> Mo in the chat room says, funny, REI didn't shut down their online store today. No, well, that, that's good at least, right, if people wanted to actually get something from there. But, um, yeah. Okay. So um, that is Black Friday, which you have to. On, on Black Friday, you have to do the obligatory. So how did people do? Did everybody in, enjoy their Christmas feast? Has anybody anybody shopping today? Is there particularly good deals? I know Amazon does have some good Black Friday deals out there, but, of course, they don't have brick and mortar. Yeah, COG says, I hate fights. Negativity is such a downer. You know, the interesting thing is what we're going to do is we're going to start to go into a discussion of a fight, now, I'm not in the fight myself per se, although I guess I'm taking a stand on the fight. But I, I'm not going to try to give you the negative approach here at all. Um, the the person who sort of started the the fight, so to speak, 
is Ari Armstrong. And I don't know if Ari Armstrong is still connected with the objective standard. I had heard that maybe he wasn't, and I don't see a reference on his blog here, but I know at one time he had done a whole lot of writing and editing for the objective standard. Um, But the headline of, of his piece is, Why I Will Vote, this is very provocative, Why I Will Vote for Any Democrat Over Ted Cruz. Why I Will Vote for Any Democrat Over Ted Cruz. And he says, I support many of Ted Cruz's positions, including his call for freedom of association for religious business owners. In 2013, I praised Cruz for taking a stand against Obamacare and for quoting Atlas Shrugged in the process. Last year, I praised Cruz again for championing freedom of speech in the political realm. Earlier this year, when my then-editor, Craig Biddle, okay, there's the answer, then-editor, Craig Biddle described Cruz as potentially the best candidate America will see in this election cycle, his case struck me as optimistic but not wildly implausible. Time will tell, Biddle added. And And that's my approach as well. He says, what time has told me is not only can I not vote for Ted Cruz for president, but that I must vote for any Democrat against him. And why does he say this? Um, If you know, uh, you probably know this, that Cruz appeared along with Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal, at something called the National Religious Liberties Conference in Iowa. And there was this host, Kevin Swanson, who was horrible, who apparently openly called for the death penalty for homosexuals albeit only after they've had a chance to repent. Another speaker at the conference apparently distributed literature advocating the death penalty for homosexuals. Uh, While appearing on stage with Swanson, Cruz said that a non-religious person, quote, isn't fit to be commander-in-chief in in this country. And actually, I'm going to one-up Armstrong here because the quote was actually a bit worse than that. Um, He said that a person who doesn't begin his day on his knees, I'm I'm quoting from memory here, a person who doesn't begin his day on his knees isn't fit to be commander-in-chief of this country. So not only does a person have to be religious, you're emphasizing the aspect of religion that has you beginning your day on your knees in some sort of submission, you know, humbling yourself before a superior entity, which is for people who are atheists like myself, especially kind of egoist atheist like myself, that is one of the worst aspects of religion is belittling yourself, uh, you know, being you know humble before an, you know, an imagined entity, a superior entity, a god. So it's not just, you know, that he thinks that the person should be religious, but he's emphasizing that aspect of beginning your day on your knees. Now, you know, when I, when I saw this quotation, I've criticized it myself, um, and Cruz is specifying the role of commander-in-chief. So you could probably have a conversation with Cruz, and I would love to have a conversation with Cruz uh, about this, but you know, he would say, you're sending America's men and women off in harm's way, potentially to lose their lives or be maimed or horribly injured and, and disfigured. And if you're doing that, you need to be very humble and aware of what's going on. And and so I guess his approach to that would be religion. And my answer to him would be, well, as an atheist, I don't believe that someone who loses his life is going on to some sort of afterlife or a better afterlife, no matter how good they are. Um, This life is all we have. So, sorry, squeaking the voice. So, of course, I would take very, very seriously any decision 
to send members of the military off in harm's way. I would lift the horrible, crippling rules of engagement that don't allow them to defend themselves properly when they are overseas, etc. Um, so we can have that debate. But I, I, you know, to me, someone who has been a supporter of Ted Cruz since 2013 as well, um, obviously supporter within a context. I've always qualified my support. Right? I say, so far as I know, this guy is very promising. So far as I know, he's the best candidate out there that I've seen so far. You know, it's, it's, and I, it's always open to further evidence that I'm wrong. Um, you know, but with the support of Cruz that I'm willing to give him as a religious candidate, I myself was offended with the idea that he would say that someone like me, an atheist, regardless of qualifications or anything else, would not be fit to be commander in chief of the the country. Um, so any anyway, but so what Armstrong is focusing on is that comment. In addition to the fact that Cruz appeared on stage with this guy Swanson, uh, Mo in the chat room says, I think if you ask Cruz directly, he admits that he makes decisions on rational judgment not from incoming messages from God. Well, I mean, he would say that his rational faculty is given to him by God, right? And so that, in effect, he's still working in accordance with God's will if he's using his rational faculty. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can talk about that in a minute. Um, so, so what is the answer here? Do you say, okay, I'm going to just not vote for Cruz. I'll vote for any, any Democrat over Cruz, any Democrat over Cruz because of this. I mean, first of all, who's the most likely Democratic candidate to come into office? And many people have pointed this out. It's Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton has ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and other very disturbing Islamic organizations that have a lot more in terms of violation of human rights in store than does this one guy. Cruz himself I do not think he believes anything like this. So the question is, do you attribute this to him? Do you think the fact that Cruz appeared at this one event on the stage with this horrible bigot, and I'll give it to you, this guy is a horrible bigot. Anybody who's calling for death to homosexuals does that. But do you say, okay, I'm not going to vote for Cruz. I will vote for any Democrat over Cruz because he appeared at this. And I, and I, I say no. I, you know, Even if you are an atheist yourself, you have to make all of this judgment in a context. Um, other candidates have and will appear with all of these other religious people. Um, oh, we're talking about Trump here in the chat room. Trump Trump is a horrible pragmatist. Yeah, I mean, maybe Trump is not religious and wouldn't appear here. Um, Freedom Breeze says, no, I thought about it, but I think Ted Cruz has separated his religious fervor from reality enough so far. You know, what, what this brings up, of course, is the issue, the perpetual issue within, you know, these infights of objectivist movement so far, is how do you make these decisions about political candidates, about political positions um, in today's context? And, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to take the current slate of candidates that we have available in the GOP, which seems to be the only alternative to this relentless march to totalitarianism, right? We've got, we want to choose some candidate in the GOP to undo some of what Barack Obama has done and moreover prevent 
further marching towards socialized medicine, towards an egalitarian sort of redistributional system of tax and penalize. Um, you know, we don't want to take the GOP slate as what we'd say metaphysically given, right? Certainly, there could be other candidates, right? This is this is a whole man-made slate. They all choose to run. Um, there's a whole bunch of people who chose to give money to these people and support to these people. This is all human artifice, right, that we have this slate of candidates. On the other hand, there is very little that we can do about having any better candidate than is in this current slate right now, actually potentially nothing. And as you know, the objectivist movement is quite small. Your own book has said a number of times, you know, how, how we vote doesn't matter. So what are you supposed to do in this case? I'm going to take a sip of water. Sorry, one sec. actually took a gulp of water, so I lied. Um, so, so what do we do in this case? Well, what we do need to do, of course, is try to choose as best we can the best candidate within the current context. And the current context, we have to judge very carefully. How important is it that we have a candidate who is strong on foreign policy right now? How important is it that we have a candidate who vows to repeal every single word of Obamacare? How do we, you know, how important is it that there is a candidate who is for freedom for homosexuals, who would continue to uphold the right to gay marriage that homosexuals have won, you know, through the you know, Supreme Court in the past year? Um, all of these issues we have to judge and pick a candidate accordingly. And what I've been doing all along is kind of having, I don't know about a love-hate relationship with Ted Cruz, but I, I've really, really liked him at times. And I have really, really disliked some things that he said in some of his positions at times as well. So what do you do? You know, And, and for me, all I've done is I said, look, you know, at most stages, all through the cycle so far, I have said that I thought Cruz is probably the best candidate out there. But I haven't gone out there and worn a T-shirt, put a sticker on my bumper car, uh, donated tons of money. I've donated a little bit of money to his campaign, but they keep asking me for more, and I haven't given more uh, because I do have reservations about him. Yes, if if the election were today, I would want him over anybody out there, but I'm open to the idea that we're going to learn a lot more between now and next November when we're called on to to go to the ballots. Um, so the thing that I can't really understand here is Armstrong saying unequivocally, I will not vote for Cruz. In fact, I will vote for any Democrat over Cruz. And then he would say that now. I mean, think of all the horrible things that we've already learned about Hillary Clinton and think about what we will probably still learn between now and the time we are called to pull the lever, push the button, fill out the card, whatever, next November. Tim in the chat room says, apparently Ari is still waiting for the perfect candidate or else he'll throw a fit and vote against America, right? And and I'm sympathetic with, with that point of view. It is a very, very heavily contextual judgment that we're all making here. What is a vote against America? You might say 
that, and this is the, you know, Ari Armstrong's argument, particularly in his next piece. He's got two pieces, actually. He then has a piece called Voting Political Activism and Taking a Stand, uh, where he sort of addresses some of the, the criticisms that he's gotten in reaction to the first piece. And there he's talking about the importance of sending a message to the Republicans that we need a better candidate, that we won't take these wishy-washy candidates. And that if, you know, someone makes a horrible mistake and says a wrong thing, that we need to let them know that they can't just get away with it. Now, uh, you know, and and, and he basically implies, he says, look, I didn't publish that piece to tell you how I was voting. Um, He said that would just be kind of stupid and vain and everything. He says, but really what I'm doing is I'm trying to engage in this sort of political activism where I try to communicate a message to the GOP that they need to get better in order to earn people's votes. And I, I think the difference between us here is a judgment call, right? I am making the judgment call that Ted Cruz is about the best candidate that you could expect today. And in fact, I think he's better than any candidate I would have expected to be running in this election, which is why for me, it's very tempting to get very enthusiastic about Ted Cruz. I mean, here's this guy. He's on the floor of the Senate. He's recommending Atlas Shrugged to everyone. He recently quoted from Ayn Rand again. I I went ahead and played the clip a couple weeks ago. Um, This guy has excellent positions, as good as you could expect, again, from anybody who could conceivably get elected. Um, Is he going to get rid of Medicare during his term? Probably not. Is he going to significantly reform it in the right direction? Yes. He has talked about getting rid of entire departments, like Department of Education, for example. He's talked about getting rid of the IRS. Imagine getting rid of the power of the IRS to curb speech, for example, through denying tax-exempt status to entities and all that kind of stuff. Um, this, this whole—I mean—he has so many good positions. The, you know, the vow to repeal every single word of Obamacare. The fact that in his foreign policy, he sounds less like a neocon than any of the other guys who are probably electable. Trump, we don't even know his views. He just seems to be kind of waving with the wind. But Rubio sounds like a definite neocon. Um, Ted Cruz, to me, is that candidate that we needed to push the GOP out there to produce. And in fact, we know he's that candidate because we see this other article that I have in my program notes. Again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Check out all the program notes. Oh, I thought I had this one. Oh, yeah, I do have it. Okay, sorry, it's under the video. Right under the first video uh, where I've got Ted Cruz there uh, talking about free speech, I have this article about Marco Rubio and the GOP establishment taking aim at Ted Cruz. Right now, he is the guy to defeat. And I think the fact that they know he's the guy to defeat. And why is he the guy to defeat? Do you think it's because he's religious? No, he's not the guy to defeat because he's so religious or his views on homosexuality and stuff. The GOP establishment and Marco Rubio and stuff, they're they're willing to swallow all that stuff themselves. But the reason that they think Ted Cruz is horrible is because he is serious about getting rid of the cronyism in Washington. And he's going to totally do whatever he can to annihilate the gravy train for all of these politicians, both Democrat and Republican. They are scared of him. And that, to me, is the best indication that he is the better candidate 
that we need to be pushing the GOP to to produce for this term. In future elections, we could get pickier, and we could, you know. Um, so, uh, to me, I think he is the best. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm withholding my criticism. And in fact, there are people on the other side who are very, very, very enthusiastic about Ted Cruz. And when I come out there and I say, look, you know, this comment that he made about an atheist not being fit to be commander in chief, that offends me. And I go on as well and I make these comments and I got all this abuse and everything on Facebook. So I will communicate my misgivings with them. So that's kind of that's that's my approach. I do think that Ted Cruz is about the best you could expect this cycle. I support him with reservation. Um, it's interesting because I went uh, had a little bit of communication with Ari. I had jokingly suggested on a Facebook thread that I would start a group. And the group would be called, um, it was something like supporters of gay marriage. Oh, yeah, objectivist supporters of gay marriage for Cruz or something like that. And you cannot get a more controversial group than that, right, because not all objectivists even support gay marriage. So if I'm, you know, I'm the head of some group, objectivist supporters of gay marriage for Cruz, that would be pretty fun. Uh, but he was saying, look, you know, in in the spirit of political activism, he says, you know, if you support Cruz, you should have a group. You should have a group called Atheists for Ted Cruz. Atheists for Ted Cruz. And then you'd basically send a message to Cruz that, look, you know, there's this atheist contingent who has reservations with you and your positions, certain of your positions, but supports you within today's context. And, you know, that this is something valuable that Cruz should look at. That's tempting. Like I said, um, the fact that Cruz is as good or better than you could expect in today's climate of a candidate, that his intellect is unmatched out there. Uh, the one thing I wasn't talking about earlier was um, his wonderfully principled support for freedom of expression, which you can see on display in that YouTube video that I posted at the blog. Again, don'tletitgo.com. Get those program notes. Check it out. Um, but you know, here here is this man that we just could not have expected in the 2016 cycle up there, you know, on the floor of the Senate reading praises to Ayn Rand into the congressional record on a fairly regular basis, even as a candidate, he's still out there doing it. Unlike Paul Ryan, who ran, you know, she, he ran and hid. So here's this guy. It's very tempting to get very enthusiastic and say, yeah, I'll start that group atheist for Ted Cruz. Woohoo. Let's go. Um, but I have the reservation, and the reservation is along the lines of what Jerome Brooke was talking about a few weeks ago. Again, in the program notes, I have a link to Jerome's show from a few weeks ago. He's calling his show The Radical Capitalist, and yes, I'm promoting my competitor to you. Okay, it's it's Jerome. He's He's my competitor. It's not a direct head-to-head competition, but it's a competition for your time and your attention, etc., but I, I do. I think you can listen to your own, listen to me, and get different things out of out of our shows, and and we have different strengths and and weaknesses. Um, he did this really nice show about how do you evaluate candidates, and I highly recommend you listen to it if you haven't listened to it already. He, of course, can't come out in favor of a political candidate, particularly as the president of the Ayn Rand Institute, because of you know tax problems you know you can't get involved in elections like that but he can talk about what is a principled way to evaluate candidates and give you issues and one of the issues that he talked about was free speech 
And to me, I think that is super, super important. Again, let's assume Hillary Clinton is the nominee for the Democrats. And Ari Armstrong says, and we have to take him seriously, right? You're going to vote for Hillary Clinton over Ted Cruz. What is Hillary Clinton's attitude towards free speech? In my show, in the past several weeks, we've talked about two different um, things that she's been involved in that just give you an indication. One is that she has called for the investigation of oil companies that have kind of promoted ideas that uh, rebutted the climate change rhetoric that's out there. If you know ExxonMobil, for example, goes out there and actually you know spreads literature that questions the validity of the climate change alarmists, then Hillary Clinton thinks that they should be investigated for some sort of fraud because they're not touting the party line. They're not admitting that they're evil for you know destroying the sacred environment, etc. And sure enough, there have been investigations and threats of lawsuits against these by government entities. So she is talking about censoring you know, energy companies simply because they are questioning the party line, the so-called party line on climate change. So there's that. Then there was um, Judicial Watch put a piece out, and I think I talked about it in last week's show, where there was, uh, I forget who it was, one of these comedy channels, they put out a video that was critical, a funny video, critical of Hillary. And Hillary first of all, demanded that the video be taken down. Second of all, demanded personal contact information of the comedians who appeared in the video. So what is Hillary Clinton's attitude toward free speech? You are not allowed to criticize her. And if she becomes president, that is super dangerous. You think that Obama's been bad with his attack watch and all this other stuff. You have never seen Hillary. And those two examples, those two concrete, should just give you an idea of how Hillary Clinton is going to be with respect to the crucial value of free speech. Remember, if we can't spread the right ideas, we cannot change the country, the world, the culture. We can't do it. Then... You know, so think about those examples. And if you have not watched it already, you need to watch Ted Cruz. It's about 51 minutes, that video that I shared there. I watched it um, close to the time that he gave the speech. It was September 2014. And he displays such a profound understanding of free speech and what it means to fully protect the right to freedom of expression, including the ability to spend money spreading ideas. There's no other political candidate today who has the understanding of free speech that Ted Cruz does. And free speech is such a crucial value, and particularly a crucial value for being able to express your disagreement with your president and the administration and your congressman, etc. That if we have Ted Cruz in office and we don't agree with his policy with regard to homosexuals, by the way, I think the worst that he's going to do is he's going to try to do something to get rid of gay marriage. He's not going to do anything else. With, you know, he's going to say uh, bakers can refuse to bake cakes, which I'm I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of bakers being able to refuse to bake cakes, you know, for homosexual weddings. So I, I don't see, practically speaking, there's going to be a lot of danger. But if there's anything that he proposes that you disagree with, you'll be able to speak your mind under a Ted Cruz presidency. You will not be able freely to speak your mind under a Hillary Clinton presidency. The IRS will still be there. You'll be threatened with audits and all sorts of other horribleness. 
and you know talk about freedom on the internet and everything else. I think Ted Cruz is going to be head and shoulders above Hillary Clinton on any of that. Freedom Breeze says motive, uh, motive. Oh, they're talking about motive power, buying time. Um, and he says if if Ted Cruz panders to the religious in order to get dollars to become president and defend free speech, destroy ISIS and Obamacare, that's fine with me. And again, this is a judgment call that needs to be made. And you know, I, I disagree with Ari Armstrong on this. Um, I'm not going to go out there and denounce. Ari Armstrong as irrational and this and that. The the one thing that I very much object to that Ari Armstrong did, um, you know, this is a tactic. He's going out there and saying, okay, I'm trying to get a better candidate. I disagree with his evaluation. I think Ted Cruz is the best candidate that we could expect the GOP to spit out this election cycle. And even then, they're not necessarily going to let us have him, right? Um, The other thing that I disagree with is the tone that he sometimes expressed. So, for example, in the post on Facebook in which he shared it, he says, well, you know, this is going to irritate Ted Cruz supporters, but they deserve to be irritated. It's like, okay, Ted Cruz supporters deserve to be irritated? Why in the world would you say they deserve to be irritated? Again, choosing a political candidate is hard in this election cycle. And those of us who have never seen a good political candidate that we agree with up and down on everything in our lifetime, we really have to fight ourselves not to just completely throw all of our weight behind the best candidate that we've seen in our lifetime, which I think is Ted Cruz. Um, So while I do think I don't share the 100% unbridled enthusiasm of some people towards Ted Cruz, because I'm always, you know, kind of, okay, when's when's the next time he's going to say an atheist isn't qualified to be commander-in-chief? Or, you know, when is the next time that he's going to use the word uh, religious freedom in a way that sort of implies getting special favors for people who are religious versus just actual freedom, right? Um, Because, you know, there's kind of package deals that go on with religious freedom. So, So I have my qualms. And I have to fight that enthusiasm. But I don't think that those people who are enthusiastic about Ted Cruz, that they deserve to be irritated, even if I think they're maybe going a little bit overboard for my taste. We are making a difficult contextual judgment. Things are really bad out there. Many of us think that this is the guy who could either buy us time at the minimum or at the maximum, and I think he's going to do this, I think he has the potential to push us in the right direction and make a significant amount of progress uh, along those lines. So that's the thing that I object to the most, this idea of, yeah, you know, stir the pot, let's irritate them, because they deserve to be irritated. I don't agree they deserve to be irritated, um, even if they're, un, you know, qualifiedly, you know, total cruise worshipers or something. I, I don't blame it. I'm, I'm tempted. Part of me is tempted to do exactly the the same thing. So um, in essence, what's my position on this? I think that, yes, I definitely disagree with Cruz. I would love to see him in the next debate questioned about his appearance at that thing with Swanson. And, you know, do you share his views that there should be a death penalty for homosexuality? Because it is true. If we're, you know, going out there promoting death penalty for homosexuals, you're not any better than the Islamic terrorists, ISIS, people in Saudi Arabia, et cetera, who do the, exactly the same thing, uh, death penalties for things where no death penalty is due. 
Um, you know, we could actually go into a tangent about whether homosexuality is metaphysical versus man-made. Um, I tend to think more metaphysically, which is why I'm more accepting of homosexuality. Um, but that's another topic for another day. So, so yeah, I disagree with Cruz on these views. I would love to see him questioned on it. But I do think that the worst-case scenario, you have a Cruz presidency with robust freedom of expression. And then you are able at least to express your disagreement. Whereas with Hillary, I would forecast that we would have further clamping down on freedom of expression. Right now, the FCC has more control over the Internet in the realm of net neutrality. We're waiting to see what's going to happen with all of that. And the FCC could shut us down, could make it so that we're not able to speak the truth, promote the right ideas like I'm trying to do here every week. Uh, Tim in the chat room says, I would rather encourage Cruz's good ideas than dismiss him entirely as a candidate for something he holds in common with most people, namely irrational ideas. Yes, I think that's a good point, too. Um, Cruz may sometimes be more vocal in expressing some of these ideas because he is engaging in a deliberate strategy to court the so-called base and a lot of the evangelicals. Um, but nonetheless, Rubio, Rubio just said some horrible thing the other day about um, if there's a, I'm paraphrasing, if there's a clash between God's law and man's law, then God's law has to win out or something like that. They all have this, right? Um, and, and you might argue, you say, well, Amy, you know, you go out there and you make these pronouncements that you disagree with Ted Cruz. I think it is important I agree with Jerome Brook on this, that the most important thing is when we talk about the candidates to praise the good and criticize the bad. And that's what I've attempted to do throughout. And and I do admit it is so tempting to, you know, get on the bandwagon for a candidate and get all excited um, when they say really excellent things and to drop that context that there are these other things about them that make them less than ideal and while you can support them in the context and be fairly enthusiastic, there are things that you wouldn't, you know, you, you don't want to go over the board with it. And you don't want to try to whitewash the things that are wrong with them. I do think it's a problem to stand on stage and act friendly with this guy Swanson. Um, Freedom Bree says, yes, Cruz has enough self-esteem to tolerate more free speech. Yes. And we've seen that. Um, there's videos where Cruz is, you know, giving some sort of talk or appearing somewhere. And uh, I forget which group it was that had crashed um, Pink, Code Pink or something, had crashed one of his events. And what did he do? He invited them up and said, okay, let's have a discussion. Let's have a dialogue. He is confident enough in his own point of view and his ability to argue for his positions that he welcomes the criticism. Of course, I think that if he really welcomed it, that he would appear on this show and then we would have a little bit of a dialogue and I'd try to press him on some things. But I know my show is kind of small potatoes for him, so I don't know if he'd you know, think it would be worth the time. But I would ask him some questions that you know, nobody else is asking him. So would your own for that matter. So you know, appear on your own show or my show. It would be a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to call in and talk about any of this, tell me if you think my opinion on the Ari Armstrong piece is is right, wrong, washed up, whatever, 760-888-5817 is the number. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Alan, the chat room, says, yes, it would be nice 
if we could influence Cruz more directly and encourage him in the right direction. I mean, I, I try to do, I try to praise the good and criticize the bad. And I think there is more than more good than bad about him, particularly in this context, but other people disagree. Um, and again, you know, R. Armstrong, I'm not going to say he deserves to be irritated. But I, I think he's very wrong to say that those of us who support Cruz, or particularly those people who are super enthusiastic about Cruz, that they deserve to be irritated. No, they don't deserve um maybe he doesn't you know see that people are are calling crews on things but um then you just say look you should call crews on this don't say i'll vote for any democrat over i don't i personally don't think a decision to vote for any democrat over ted cruz during this election would be a rational decision because again i think ted cruz is the best you could possibly expect out of the gop in this election cycle perfect no best you could expect now yes yeah. Oh, uh, Tim says he's got some stuttering audio here. I don't know if that's my voice, if that's something that's going on. It could be the Skype. I am using Skype. Yeah, okay, so Chrome is, is your best browser, people are saying here in the chat room. So if you're having trouble, you might try Chrome as your browser. Uh, I am sorry for those those things. Um What do you what what is Fiona? Fiona says no, Amy. LOL. Oh, it's not my voice. Okay, my voice is quite squeaky. This is actually probably not my best cold voice. My best cold voice is not as squeaky as this. Okay. Well, let's let's go on to another story that I did want to cover, although it's not really directly on the theme of judging the metaphysical, the man-made, and political candidates. Uh, this, I couldn't resist from New York Times. New York Times is kind of developing a track record here. It's a little bit scary of publishing pieces critical of the Obama administration and its policies. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I believe I shared a story New York Times had about kind of how surprising it was that within Iran, there was this horrible anti-American backlash after the Iran deal. And now what they have is they have this uh, story published today, and the headline is, Tighter Lid on Records Threatens to Weaken Government Watchdogs. And what this piece is, is it's a piece critical of the Obama administration's policy on so-called transparency. Uh, Here's the story. It says, Justice Department watchdogs ran into an unexpected roadblock last year when they began examining the the role, excuse me, examining the role of federal drug agents in the fatal shootings of unarmed civilians during raids in Honduras. The DEA balked at turning over emails from senior officials tied to the raids, according to the department's inspector general. It took nearly a year of wrangling before the DEA was willing to turn over all its records in a case that the inspector general said raised, quote, serious questions, end quote, about agents' use of deadly force. The continuing Honduran inquiry is one of at least 20 investigations across the government that have been slowed, stymied, or sometimes closed because of a long-simmering dispute between the Obama administration and its own watchdogs over the shrinking access of inspectors general to confidential records. And this is according to 
records, uh, excuse me, records and interviews that they have. Bottom line, says Michael E. Horowitz, the Justice Department Inspector General, he says, we are no longer independent. The restrictions, says the article, reflect a broader effort by the Obama administration to prevent unauthorized disclosures of sensitive information at the expense, some watchdogs insist, of government oversight. The Justice Department lawyers concluded in a legal opinion this summer that some protected records like grand jury transcripts, wiretap intercepts, and financial credit reports could be kept off limits. The administration insists there is no intention of curtailing investigations, but both Democrats and Republicans in Congress have expressed alarm and are promising to restore full access to the watchdogs. So it's been a five-year dispute with the Justice Department with all of these new restrictions. The article goes on to talk about the Inspector General system. It was created in 1978 in the wake of the Watergate investigation. It's an independent check on government abuse. Um, And they say, not surprisingly, tensions are common between these independent watchdogs and the officials that they investigate. And they say that uh, under Reagan, that he fired 15 Inspectors Generals in 1981. Now, of course, he had just come into office, so that's expected. Uh, But then they go on to continue, to be fair under Obama, they say, but a number of scholars and investigators said the restrictions imposed by the Obama administration reflect a new level of acrimony. And here's a quote from Paul Light. Paul Light is an NYU university professor. He has studied the system, and he says this, quote, this is by far the most aggressive assault on the inspector general concept since the beginning. Okay, so since 1978, Obama is the worst. Uh, Continuing, Professor Light says, it's the complete evisceration of the concept. You might as well fold them down. They've become defanged. And then here's the New York Times calling Obama on his promise. Remember, they say, while President Obama has boasted of running, quote, the most transparent administration in history, end quote. They say some watchdogs say the clampdown has scaled back scrutiny of government programs. This runs against transparency, said the Peace Corps Inspector General Kathy Bueller. And then they talk about, you know, she was trying to investigate and uh, there was no turnover of the abuse reports that they were asking for, et cetera. She says it's been incredibly frustrating. We've spent so much time and energy arguing with the agency over this issue. Um, Peace Corps on, says that they are committed to rigorous oversight, and yet behind the scenes, of course, they're denying access to records. At the Commerce Department, the Inspector General this year shut down an internal audit of enforcement of international trade agreements because the department's lawyers, citing the Justice Department's guidance, refused to turn over business records that they said were, quote, proprietary and protected. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency's Inspector General, has reported a series of struggles with the organization over its access to documents, including records the agency said were classified or covered by the attorney-client privilege. And investigators at the Postal Service, a special Afghanistan uh, reconstruction board, and other federal agencies have complained of tightened restrictions on investigative records as well. And they're saying hopes of a quick end to the impasse have dimmed in recent days because the Obama administration volunteered uh, 
to restore full access to the Justice Department's Inspector General, but not the other 71 watchdogs. So maybe he decided, okay, I'll give more access to the Justice Department's Inspector General, but because that's the one who's kind of the linchpin that's going to put the pressure on me, but not these other 71. So those other 71 are going to be hung out to dry. Attorney General Loretta Lynch asked about the issue at the House hearing last week, said the proposal was intended to ensure at least the Justice Department, quote, that the Inspector General would receive all the information he needed. But watchdogs outside the Justice Department say that they would be left dependent on the whims of agency officials in their investigations. So, so much for transparency. Kudos to the New York Times for calling out the Obama administration on this. Uh, Mr. Fine, who is the Pentagon's principal deputy inspector general, finishes off with this. He says, quote, it's essential to enshrine in the law that the inspector general has access to all agency records. The underlying principle is key, quote, to be an effective inspector general, you need the right to receive timely access to all agency records. Now, I don't know what you guys think about the inspector general system um, it, it's obviously, again, it's something new from 1978. Is it something that wouldn't be necessary if our government was limited to its proper scope and functions? Maybe not. Is it something that wouldn't be necessary except for the fact that typically our news media have been lapdogs for more statist presidents? And as we saw there, you know, they put that little jab in with Ronald Reagan getting rid of some inspectors general. They can't resist that. Um, but now they're even criticizing Obama. So I think that's interesting. Obama must have mistreated the press and taken them for granted just one too many times for the New York Times to start publishing this. But um, in any event, in you know today's world, there has been a judgment and Watergate shows that it was probably well-founded that we need the inspectors general in this system that we have now. Maybe someday we can get rid of it when we scale back the, the size and scope of the federal government. But we need it now in order to have this system of checks and balances, to have oversight, and Obama isn't going to have it. So here, here's another question for you. president is going to have a more transparent administration, in your opinion, would it be a Hillary Clinton presidency or would it be a Ted Cruz presidency? I would bet quite a bit of money on the Ted Cruz presidency, money that I don't have at the moment, but you know, I, I think I'd, I'd win a lot. If somebody wanted to do the the bet in the other way, um, selfishness is just what we need: a government with the power to blurring the distinction between the metaphysical and the man-made. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times what they're doing now is they're making judgment calls that there are certain things that you just have to accept about government. You know, certain things are proprietary, certain things are top secret, and you can't give it to the inspector general. <sighs> Anyway, so I had to share that little bit of not great news with you. It, but, you know, what's the good news? The good news is the New York Times is starting more and more to publish these pieces critical of the Obama administration. We can be cynical and we can say that they're doing it because, you know, Obama's on his way out. He's not running for election anymore. If they hurt him, in fact, maybe what they'll do is they'll save their credibility with respect to supporting a Hillary Clinton or a Bernie Sanders or whoever might get the nomination for the president's not sure. But why don't we end off today with 
some actual good news. And I've got a couple of stories from the medical front. And then after that, I've got a, a story from Jeff Bezos, which is kind of cool. Amazon. You might, Again, you might be shopping on Amazon today. If you are shopping on Amazon, if you use my handy-dandy Amazon link over at DontLetItGo.com, I have a link within the program notes for today's show. And it's the link that would take you to the ominous, I'm not the ominous parallels, um, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, that book by Leonard Peikoff. That'll take you to Amazon. Anything that you buy using that link, not just that book, but anything else, uh, that would help the show because there's a small percentage that's given to uh, to me to help to support the show. Also on the right-hand side of my blog, don'tletitgo.com, there's a link that will say shop at Amazon and support the show. And you can use that anytime. Um, that link is always there, as is if you if you want to support the show directly, you can also donate there as well. Um, but yeah, so Amazon has some good news this week. I'm going to give you in a minute. But here's some medical news, and I thought this was great. There have been so many awesome medical innovations this year. One that I saw just a couple week, weeks ago, for example, was that a um, a medical researcher in Canada has figured out how to penetrate the blood-brain barrier in order to deliver crucial, you know, medicines or substances or whatever across the blood-brain barrier. And this is something that has eluded, um, you know, doctors and, and medical researchers for a long time. And it's very promising. Of course, it's dangerous as well, right, because you really don't want to mess with your brain, um, except in very, very controlled small doses. But this idea that you could actually help to improve conditions in the brain by delivering crucial substances across the blood-brain barrier safely is uh, is excellent. Here is another wonderful piece of news. This is from The Telegraph UK, and it's dated a couple days ago, 25th of November. End of daily injections for diabetes as scientists restore insulin production. And while this is a story that comes out of the UK, it's actually reporting on some research that was done here in California and Yale. University of California and Yale, the researchers there teamed up, and they have shown that the so-called Tregs cell, they're, um, they're called peacekeeping cells. They protect insulin-making cells from the immune system. Uh, these are cells uh, of which the type 1 diabetes sufferers do not have enough. They don't have enough of these cells. So what they've shown you could do, these researchers at University of California and Yale, you can remove existing Tregs from someone's body. I guess you just extract them in the blood. You can increase them by 1,500 times, Okay which is an amazing order of magnitude. So increase them. For every one, you're going to get 1,500 of them. Increase that in the laboratory and then infuse them back into the bloodstream of the patient to restore normal functioning of the insulin-making cells in the system. So they had an initial trial of 14 people. They have shown that the therapy is safe. And the effects of the therapy, which, again, you can restore normal levels of insulin production and reactivity and all that in these diabetes type 1 sufferers, it will last for up to a year. So imagine you get this one blood infusion treatment, and for up to a year, you don't have to do the daily insulin injections. This is awesome. Um, 
they say by using tea rags to quote re-educate the immune system, we may be able to really change the course of the disease. Uh, we expect this is going to be an important part of diabetes therapy in the future. So then the question is raised: if you can do this with respect to the so-called T regs that protect insulin-making cells, could you do it with analogous cells? that are protecting other types of things in your body. For example, for Hashimoto's, which is another autoimmune disorder. Type 1 diabetes, by the way, they're saying is an autoimmune disorder. There are so many autoimmune disorders out there. MS, uh, Hashimoto's, all kinds of things. And this is very promising, this idea that you can take some of these cells out of your own body, multiply them by many, many orders of magnitude in the library, in the, library, in the laboratory, infuse them back into your body, and have normal functioning of whatever relevant part of the body is going on for a year. Um, you know, not have to take, take thyroid medication for a year, not have to take any of the medications that are supposed to help, you know, ward off the progression of MS, not have to do that for a year. And all you have to do is go in for one infusion treatment. Now, maybe what would happen is you go in, you get a blood draw, and then they do their magic in the laboratory for you know, days a week, I don't know how long it would take, and then you come back and they infuse it all in, okay? So maybe two trips, two trips to the hospital, say, but two trips to the hospital and that saves you an entire year of injections, this is wonderful. So this is the kind of thing that I meant when I was talking about earlier where I say I am confident that human innovation is going to figure out ways that we can live comfortably on this planet even with tremendous expansion of population in the future, that we don't need a so-called natural disaster to cull the population, et cetera. Um, I mean, what are we doing as we can become a more advanced society anyway? The more advanced cultures in the world today have a much lower birth rate than do, for example, countries in the Muslim world where they are, you know, Basically, I think that you, there's been the quote, one guy said, you know, we will conquer you with the wombs of our women. And they have multiple, multiple children at, at a rate that people are not. So I don't think we're going to have a big population problem. Even if we did, I think that human ingenuity is going to figure out a way around it, just like they have here with um, insulin. That's wonderful. Uh, if you want to see more examples of all kinds of medical innovation on the horizon, check out this Forbes piece that Rob Abiera sent my way over uh, via Facebook. And it's uh, the headline is Innovation Rx. Entrepreneurs and big companies alike are creating a cresting wave of innovation that could push medicine forward. And they say, here we look at some of the ideas that could disrupt the healthcare industry. That word disrupt is already getting old. Um, but I mean, I guess it's accurate, but I'm, I'm, I am starting to have my hackles raised whenever I see the word disrupt. I don't know if that's happening to you guys too or not. Um, yeah, Motive Power in the chat room says, I would take two trips to the hospital over injections, no contest. Yeah, giving yourself injections. I mean, this is why, for instance, I have never understood people who get involved in heroin. I do not want to inject a drug into my veins if I can avoid it. There's, it it's just not going to happen. Um, I, I can understand, and if, I think the injections for... Um, you know, for insulin, I think they're easier. I think they're just subcutaneous or maybe they're just intramuscular. They don't have to be intravenous. But, you know, the idea of giving yourself, giving yourself injections on a daily basis, that could get really old. And you might even have to do it multiple times a day depending on 
the severity of, of your diabetes and how you know closely you're monitoring and stuff. So it, just no contest if you can get your body to regulate itself using the cells that it already has, increasing them to a healthy level. Um, but some of the he- headlines here on this Innovation RX, why insurers are covering iPhone conversations with your doctor. Uh, is your tongue the key to a neuroscience breakthrough? That sounds interesting. Uh, what Procter & Gamble can teach the healthcare industry? Assume nothing about patients. Uh, solving the problem of too much cancer data, etc. Excuse me one second. Now I have to cough. I'm so sorry. One second. Let me I'm gonna mute the mic here. Okay, I think I'm back here. Um, I'm barely making it to the end of the show. But, yeah, do check out all of those wonderful innovations. Thanks to Rob Abiera. And then the last thing, I'm going to have to cough again. I'm sorry. (coughs) This is sad. I'm probably going to have to end the show. Um, (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) Okay. Oh, what am I going to do? Very scratchy. Please check out um, the Jeff Bezos video. Excuse me. Wow. Um, he talks about landing uh, a rocket, and it is landing vertically so it can be reused, which has never, never been done before. <laughs> Motive Power says, any innovations for coughing? Oh, I know. I wish. I wish. Um, I do have to let you go. Go to DontLetItGo.com. Watch the video. Um, continue the discussion there. Uh, contribute to the show. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, share it, but tell them I'm not normally like this, okay? Uh, take care, and I'll talk to you guys next week. I should be feeling a lot better, okay? Have a good weekend. Ooh. <laughs>